You know, when we, usually when we celebrate holidays, it's important that we take time to reflect on what that holiday means. So think about Memorial Day, for example. And at Memorial Day, we always reflect very somberly and soberly. We think about the men and women who have died in service to our country. Or on Martin Luther King Day, we think about not just Dr. King, but all the men and women who took part in the great cause of civil rights over the years. Or even just a few days ago, we celebrated the 4th of July. And we reflected, I hope, we reflected on the precious independence of the United States and what it means for us to live in a nation that's free. And usually, especially on on big days like the 4th, we don't just think about it, we participate. You probably wore something red or blue. Maybe you attended a parade or a fireworks celebration, or you bought your own fireworks to set them off. Legally, I'm sure, right? Or maybe you, uh, you had friends or family over and you barbecued in the backyard, something like that, right? We enjoy the celebration and reflect on all that it means to us. But there's kind of a limit. You know, I'm just guessing here, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm guessing that on the 4th, you didn't pull up the Declaration of Independence and read it aloud at the dinner table. You probably didn't go that far. I'm guessing that none of us drove up to Washington, D.C. and camped out in front of the Capitol to celebrate. Right? We, we, we celebrate you know, within appropriate limits, nothing too extreme. But y'all, there's a very different picture that we get of the people of Israel when we read the Bible. Something we see when we read through the Scriptures. God's people, the people of Israel they had several dedicated holidays that were not just a particular day on the calendar that they thought about in passing. These were massive feasts that the people held throughout the year where they would celebrate together the greatness and the power of God. And oftentimes, these these feasts were built around specific events in the history of Israel. So the most famous is, is the Passover where the people would celebrate the story from Exodus, where God rescues his people from uh, out of Egypt and slavery and brings them into the promised land. And the Passover was God's judgment upon Egypt in order to set his people free. But y'all, it's when we think about the feasts of Israel, we have to recognize that they're not like our holidays so much. The feasts of Israel were all-encompassing week-long, nationwide celebrations. You didn't just privately think about something for yourself. You, it, it encompassed everyone and everything. You couldn't stay on the farm and work that week. You weren't allowed to do that. You had to come and celebrate because these were feasts that were established by God Himself. And so if you didn't celebrate, if you didn't take part in the feast, then that was you were thumbing your nose at God. That was an act of defiance against the Lord. And so, y'all, it's very hard for us to appreciate just how important and how massive their celebrations, their holidays were. They're a little different than what we've come to know for ourselves. Now, I'm sharing that with you because we're in the middle of John chapter 7 today, and it just so happens that we're also, in context, we're in the middle of one of the great feasts of Israel. This was called the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of of tabernacles, and I'll talk more about that in a little bit. But y'all, when John tells us that Jesus went up to Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths, I've always thought that John's just giving us necessary information. 
You know, he's just trying to help us with the setting here. Oh, okay, it's the Feast of Booths. That's good for me to kind of know in my mind. But not here. It's not just information. It's not just setting. Something is going on here relative to the feast that we need to understand to help us see Jesus in a clearer way. Now, we're covering a lot in this chapter. Um, golly, 27 verses or so. It's a lot, okay? Some of it we're going to go through more quickly than others because there's something right in the middle of our text today that's very precious to us. So on the front end and the back end, most of what we're going to read about is how the people interpreted Jesus, their opinions of Jesus, whether good or bad. Okay? But in the middle of it, what we'll spend the most time on is really one of the most powerful invitations Jesus ever gave. One of the more powerful invitations in existence even now. And he gave it in the midst of of the feast. Okay. So start with me in verse 25. We're going to read some larger sections in one piece, and we're just going to draw out some things and highlight them as we go. This is John chapter 7, verse 25. Jesus is in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths, teaching. And so some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from? And I have not come of myself. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him. And no man laid his hand on Jesus because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? Now, y'all, if you, if you were tracking with me here, the people are not really clear on Jesus who he is, or even where he's from. They think they know where he's from, but they don't really grasp who he is. And y'all, Jesus reminds them, he interjects the way he's done really all throughout this gospel. He says, you know me, you know where I'm from, but you don't really know me, and therefore you don't receive me. And ultimately, Jesus says, it's not entirely about me. It's not that you merely reject me. He says, you don't really know the one who sent me. You don't really know and trust God the Father. That's your ultimate and deepest problem. Now, y'all, that's every bit as insulting as it sounds, and probably more so to the people of God, the people of Israel, the people who would have prided themselves. Everybody else, all the pagan nations, they don't know God at all, clearly, but we do. And Jesus says, no, you don't. And so in the face of such an insult, what do they do? The people try to seize him. They want to take hold of him and do harm to Jesus. But John says no man laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now that reads like a very simple little detail. But I, let me just, I want to highlight this for just a second. Some of the people in the crowd there in Jerusalem intended to go and grab Jesus and put him to death. 
They've already intended it before in Jerusalem back in chapter 5. Now they want to do it again, but they don't grab hold of him. In fact, they can't. Why not? Was Jesus just too slick? You know, they couldn't, just too slippery? Was his entourage too powerful? Peter, James, and John? We know that's not true. Those guys were scared to death all the time. Why couldn't they lay hands on Jesus? John says because his hour had not yet come. The hour of Jesus in John, the hour is his death. That's always what it means. They could not grab hold of him and do harm to him because his hour had not yet come. Y'all, what that means is God had predetermined how and when Jesus was going to die. And no human being could do anything about it. No scheme of man was going to derail the purpose of God. Jesus could not have been taken captive and put to death before the appointed time. This is not a small detail. This is something that we've, I hope we've tried to draw out as we've walked through John. This unbelievably supernatural divine power that rests upon Jesus at all times. He can see things that no one else can see. Jesus can know the thoughts of the people that surround them. He knows their heart even if they don't utter an audible word. Jesus is the Son of God. And therefore, even though the people have a purpose in mind, we're going to grab hold of Him and put Him to death, the truth is, John says, Jesus was invincible until the appointed time for Him to freely give His life on the cross. It would not happen before then. No matter the intentions or the schemes of man, they couldn't lay hold of Him. His hour had not yet come. When Jesus was appointed to die, He spread out His hands and He was nailed to a cross for sinners. Until that moment, He was invincible. That's amazing to me. Just a highlight there. His hour had not yet come, and therefore no one could lay a hand on Him. Let's keep going. Verse 32, the Pharisees Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers, temple police, to seize Him. Therefore Jesus said, for a little while longer, I'm with you. Then I go to Him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Uh, Y'all, real quickly, Jesus, once again, Jesus is calling his shot. He's telling everyone what's about to happen. He is going to the cross and then the grave, but he will rise from the grave and then ascend to the glory of the Father. Now, none of that has happened just yet in the narrative, but it's already certain. The hour for which Jesus came into the world is fixed. It is certain. It will come to pass. And so when Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come, there are a lot of things being communicated, I think, here. One is, you can't follow me where I'm going, ultimately where I'm going, to the cross and the grave and the resurrection and the ascension. That's for me alone to accomplish. There's a unique mission that Jesus Christ possesses as the Son of God. Nobody, not even His closest disciples, can take that specific path 
with him. Only Jesus Christ can walk it. And y'all, that's what makes his invitation so powerful. Jesus did not invite people to follow him merely. And eventually, you know, I'm going to die, and you're going to have to die with me if you're really committed, right? That's what most religious leaders would have done. That's what cult leaders do. That's not what Jesus was calling people to. Not to follow him merely in an earthly kind of way, but to come to him and to receive him. And that's what we see when Jesus gives the invitation, our greatest point of focus today, that's what we see. We see grace that he alone can offer. Look at verse 37 now. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is why I made a big deal earlier about the feasts, and specifically the Feast of Booths. Okay, Here's why. The Feast of Booths, which was also called the Feast of Tabernacles, was a a week-long celebration of God's presence and God's provision for Israel in the wilderness years. The Passover was the escape from Egypt, the rescue from slavery. The Feast of Booths now in Tabernacles is the representation of, the reflection on, God's presence in the wilderness, those 40 years of wandering before the promised land. When Israel lived in booths or tents, they, didn't, they had temporary housing. Even the temple was a tabernacle. It was a tent uh, to, to, uh, to have the presence of God present with them, but it was all mobile. It was always moving, right? And God was with them in the wilderness in miraculous ways. He gave them manna from heaven. He was a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. Clear and abundant miracles. Well, y'all, in the Feast of Booths, one of the great miracles that captured the people, that was for them a reflection of God's greatness, was the time in Exodus 17 when God provided water from the rock. That story, very simply, the people of Israel were in a place, a desert place without water. They became very thirsty and famished. And so God told Moses to take his staff and strike a great rock with his staff. And having struck the rock, God said, the rock will pour forth water for the people. Now that's not something that just happens naturally, right? That's a promise of a miracle. And so Moses takes the staff and he strikes the rock. And just as God said, water flows. Enough water to satisfy the entire nation. Hundreds upon thousands of thirsty mouths were satisfied there when the rock opened up and became a river, a spring. This was a miracle that every year now at the Feast of Booths, the people were reminded of the mercy and the power of God. And so at the Feast of Booths, one of the things they did to celebrate, the high priest would go to the Pool of Siloam, And with a golden pitcher, he would take water in the pitcher. And then the priest would 
process to the temple. And all of the people surrounding him were singing psalms of praise to God as he carried the golden pitcher full of water to the temple. And having arrived in the temple at the altar, the priest would then pour the water out at the altar as the people sang praises to God. It was a sacrifice of praise. One, the people were doing it in remembrance of the miracle from Exodus 17, but they were also doing it in anticipation, forward-looking and hoping, because they knew there was a day coming of God's promised salvation, of the pouring out, not of water, but the pouring out of the Spirit of God upon His people. And as they looked forward to that day, they would remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah 12. You will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. There is coming a day when salvation will come from God like rushing waters. Now, let's read Jesus' invitation again. Considering the feast and all that encompassed it. Look, Look again at verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast... Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Y'all think about what's happening here. On the day when the people of God celebrate God's mercy in the pouring out of the water, Jesus cries out, if you're thirsty, come to Me and drink. Jesus is declaring that He is the true source of God's mercy. Jesus is God's provision and God's ultimate satisfaction. Jesus is the one that the people were looking forward to as the spring of salvation, as the, pourer, as the one who pours out all of God's grace. Come to me, he says. What an audacious invitation. But it's even crazier than that. There's even more to it than that. Jesus doesn't just say, come to me and drink. He says, the one who believes in me from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, I want want us to think about what Jesus is actually offering us here. It's obviously not physical water. The physical water is a representation. He's offering something divine, something otherworldly. And y'all, we may remember from back in chapter 4, Jesus has this very famous conversation with a woman at a well outside of her town. And he offers her living water. The same living water we see here. And remember what he says to this woman. We'll put it on the screen. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. This is the offer of the Savior of the world. Living water to those who thirst. A water so rich, so abundant, that it becomes in you a well, even a river, that has no bottom, it has no end. A constant source and flow of eternal life. 
And so, y'all, right where we sit, I want to pose this question to you. When Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, do you know what he means? Do you know what it is to thirst? It could mean many things, perhaps, and and I want to encourage us to consider anyone, anyone who knows the emptiness of a life lived apart from God. Anyone who feels the unbearable weight of guilt and shame. Anyone who who has drawn from the wells of ambition and approval and wealth and success and romance, whatever it may be, only to find ourselves dried up again and in need of more. And I trust that you know what that's like. Seeking a quenching that does not satisfy. It only makes us thirsty all over again. Anyone who longs for a hope that will not disappoint. Anyone who comes to a feast year after year after year longing for the day when God will finally fulfill His promise to pour out His Spirit once and for all. Waiting for the day when the springs of salvation will finally burst forth for us. Anyone who wonders, is there really a God who could love me? If anyone thirsts, Jesus says, come to me and drink. This is something only God can offer. This is an invitation that only one man can speak and deliver. Jesus Christ offers us the living water that quenches every thirst. And so understand, y'all, the scale of this. We, we understand, I hope, what it means to thirst. We've all been there. Perhaps we're there even now. But what Jesus is offering you is something greater than what you probably think. He's not offering help. It's not as if Jesus is saying, listen, I'll fill your canteen all the way up to the top and I'll send you back out into the desert and wish you well. No. It's not help for the journey. Jesus is offering us life itself. Poured out from heaven. Never ending. Joy producing. Hope sustaining. Sin forgiving. All satisfying. Living water. A gift so great that one drink becomes a river. From your inmost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is offering a new life entirely. A life filled, constantly filled, and transformed by the very Spirit of God. And so y'all, this is key in case we're concerned about the meaning of the images Jesus is giving us here. I want us to be very clear, and Jesus is clear. When He says, come to Me and drink, He means come to Me in faith. You cannot pay for this water. In fact, that's the promise that's given all throughout the Scripture. 
In the book of Isaiah, God says, come and buy without cost. It costs nothing to have the water of life. And so Jesus offers us something by faith. It's something that we must receive. We cannot purchase or earn. To drink the living water is to receive Him and to trust in His saving grace. And having received Him, Jesus says, there's even another promise, an ongoing reality that He shows us. The rivers of living water that now flow from within us. And see again in verse 39. John gives a little commentary here so that we're clear. But this Jesus spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so Jesus, even as He invites people to come to Him, a very real invitation in that very present moment, He's also looking ahead to the fulfillment of His mission That Jesus Christ, when He dies on the cross and is buried and then rises again in victory, only then to ascend to the right hand of the glory of the Father. Once glorified, Jesus pours out the very Spirit of God on all who believe in Him. And we're going to see Jesus talk a lot more about the Spirit as we walk through the Gospel of John. But just for now, I want to point out one thing about this promise. Y'all, this promise of a river of living water, this is not a thing Jesus promises us. This is a person. The promise is a person. That's why Spirit is capitalized. The Spirit of God is not a thing. It's not a power. It's not a force. It's a He. He, the Spirit of God, is a person. The very presence of God dwelling within those who have faith in Jesus. And so it's a personal promise and it's an ongoing promise. Y'all, this is so important for us to grasp and easy maybe for us to take for granted. When Jesus defines for us the Christian life right here, He does it using uh, a metaphor. But we have to be clear on one thing. The Christian life is not a momentary religious experience. To say, well, Jesus offered me forgiveness. I received that forgiveness. Now what? As if the totality of the Christian life is, I can point back to the day I raised my hand or walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or got baptized, and that's, my, that's what makes me a Christian. Well, yes. But if that's all, then we've missed the significance of his words here. We've missed the Christian life really altogether. Not a momentary religious experience but the indwelling of the very person of God, His Spirit, who is with us every moment on into eternity. And understand this also, that the Christian life is not God wiping your slate clean and offering you a second chance at life. As if that would do us any good. God is not in the business of simply giving us a do-over, a second chance. No. The person of God, His very Spirit, comes within us and transforms us. Y'all, I'm I'm fairly (laughs) self-confident, right or wrong, but I know better than to think that even on my very best day, I could live in a manner worthy of God's perfect righteousness. 
I hope I know my own heart better than that. One of the old preachers, it might have been Dwight Moody, said, I wouldn't trust the best 15 minutes of my life to get me into heaven. And that's the truth. If God wipes the slate clean and gives you another chance, it would do you no good at all. You need His Spirit within you. You need to be transformed. You need the divine life of God surging through your heart and your soul. And so when Jesus offers us living water, a water so rich that one drink becomes a river flowing within us, that means that the very Spirit of God abides in us forever. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, He is in you and with you even now. Now, y'all, if this, if this is big stuff, if this is kind of hard for, for you and me to wrap our minds around, I mean, I think it's supposed to be. And I, don't, I wouldn't venture to try to stand up here and explain all the inner workings of the Holy Spirit. There's mystery in this that I think we're meant to just be okay with because this is something beyond our categories. Jesus is not offering us something that we can fully grasp and understand and manipulate and control. This is the Spirit of God within us. And so I just want to rest here with us and say, there is no more wonderful promise. There is no greater invitation in all the world than this right here. Search the world over. Seek for anything that will quench this thirst in your soul. You'll never find it. You'll always end up thirsty again. Only Jesus Christ satisfies. And He offers it for free. Y'all, I'd love for us to end here, but the chapter's not quite over. I want you to forgive me. We're going to kind of race through the last part of this thing. If you're looking at the clock, don't worry. We're going to go fast. But I want you to watch the response of the people. And as we read what Jesus just invited us into, some of the people find very intriguing. Others find it very threatening. Look what happens in verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of Jesus. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. We already know why. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You've not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus who came to him before, chapter 3, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? They answered him, You're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. That was a serious uh, uh, insult, by the way. If you can, you know. These guys are upset. The Pharisees are mad. And I just want to make one comment on this before we close. We've seen this several times now in John. We've seen it again today, where Jesus says to the religious leaders, to the most religious people in the world, you don't really know God. 
Now that's a startling accusation. How can Jesus get away with that? But we get somewhat of a sense of, of what Jesus meant right here. We see it. These men are so filled with self-righteousness that they have no room in their hearts at all for the grace of God. They are beyond their need for grace in their own minds. And so when Jesus offers living water, those words are not sweet to them. They're bitter. They're offensive. How dare someone come along and tell us that we don't really know God? How dare someone come along and tell us that we need a grace because there's something in me that is deficient that I can't achieve in my own power? They don't need the living water in their own estimation because they were just sure that they had already arrived by their own doing. Everybody else is accursed. Those people out there, they don't know God, but we do. Maybe you could say it like this. These men had no awareness of their own thirst. They didn't consider themselves as thirsty. Their souls were dry as a bone, but they refused to see it because they were so full of themselves. Y'all, that's what self-righteousness is. The conviction that somehow I'm good enough on my own, I don't need any help. And so, y'all, this is my encouragement here as we go. The religious leaders, now we know they're the bad guys. We know they're bad. But, y'all, it's, it's, it's really easy for me to put those shoes on, and they fit just fine. The religious leaders were doing the most natural thing in the world. They were putting themselves in the driver's seat. They were looking to themselves for salvation. And y'all, this is something every one of us in this room has done. Perhaps we're even doing it right now. We convince ourselves somehow, somehow, yes, I can be good. I can find happiness. I can be enough. I'm enough. I can make my way to God. We, we fall into this temptation constantly, this sense of I can and I must. I've got to work my way to God. What other way is there? But y'all, the hard truth of the Bible is that in ourselves we can do nothing. And as hard as that is to hear, it's also wonderful, it's liberating truth. Because once we recognize the abrasive nature of that reality, I can do nothing, I am, if I know my own heart, if I see my own life, if I actually read what the Bible says, then I come to this one conclusion that I am empty and desperately needy. I'm thirsty. And yet it's wonderful. Because right there in that desert place, in that place of our greatest need, the voice of the Savior cries out. Anyone who thirsts, come to me. Come to me and drink. There is no greater news. There is no greater invitation. The driest of souls may become a river of living water by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning that, that we would overflow with gratitude, with joy, with a humble thanksgiving in our hearts. 
Lord, help us to see and recognize with no uncertainty that we are not enough. That we cannot be good in a way, Lord, that we can make ourselves acceptable to You. That we are not able to pick ourselves up and make ourselves anything in the end. And Lord, remind us and refresh us in this truth as well, that there's nothing out there that's going to satisfy the great thirst of our souls. Show us, Father, in in vivid crystal detail this beautiful invitation that we've been offered today, that we've been given. Lord, even for those of us who are Christians and maybe have been Christians for quite a while, we have trusted Christ and walked with Him. We have the Spirit, just as Jesus promised. Father, I pray for a refreshment for us today. That we are continually receiving this very invitation to come to Jesus, to come to Him, to come to Him and drink. To receive living water that washes away all sin, that fills and satisfies entirely, that never runs out. Father God, will you bless us this morning to receive an invitation like this with glad and open hands. Lord, if we know what it is to thirst, then I pray, Father, that we would look nowhere else but to the one person, the one, who offers living water and actually delivers, Jesus Christ. Father, for those of us who do know Him and trust Him, Help us to recognize that we have within us rivers. Not a dripping faucet. Not an occasional help in time of need. But rivers. The Holy Spirit. Always within us. Supplying life and grace and power. To do all that you've called us to do. Father, let this promise be for us something unimaginably great. And let these rivers within us, Lord, uh, be uh, be a, a, a flow of living water in all the places that, Lord, we touch and all the people that we encounter. Lord, a, a water so rich and abundant that it could not possibly stay with us and remain private and personal. Lord, let it be an overflow. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.